Uh, we're going to take a break from our uh, Romans series, which we've been in uh, this year along with uh, the book of Genesis. And we're going to take the next uh, four or five weeks or so and uh, take a, another, another look at our vision as a church. And um, the passage we're going to begin with uh, to do that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to look at the, first, or the verses 3 through 9. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a context, this, this chapter is probably most famously known as the chapter about the resurrection. And uh, if you know anything about uh, the church in Corinth, it was a disaster. Uh, and yet Paul begins that letter calling them saints. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to, to always hear it as this is coming to people who are in need, who don't have their act together. And uh, that's good news uh, if you're here uh, this morning. So let's... Uh, let's give our attention to God's word, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this passage. And this is uh, the Apostle Paul, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then it's not in your folder, but it goes on in the first part of verse 10. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's take a look at this passage together as we return to our, our vision and uh, kind of reorient ourselves. And if you open up, I think it's on the, the, the first page of your worship folder, you'll see our vision. We have um, our vision is encapsulated into one sentence there at the top. And in the middle, you'll find our core values, and then at the bottom, our objectives or our goals. And at least for me, any vision that's worth its weight, it has to answer certain key questions if it's going to be useful and practical for us going forward. And so just as a reminder, uh, that, that first statement there, the vision statement, really answers the question, why are we here? Why are we as a church, as we look at the scriptures and look at this place and try to bring together our sense of God's call on us as a community, why are we here? We are here to pursue renewal and healing for all the people and places of Birmingham through gospel ministry and word and deed. That's why we're here. But then our values, they answer the question, who are we? Who are we? Another way to think about that and how the elders have thought about that is what are those characteristics of this church that we believe are most descriptive of who we are and are those qualities and characteristics that we would be willing to suffer for, that we are not going to give up on, but these are fundamental to who we are. And we have their gospel centrality, gathered worship, Gospel community and city focus. 
And then we've got our objectives or our goals. And, and really, those answer the question, how do we go about doing ministry? How are we going to go about pursuing this vision? But what I want to do is spend some time looking at these core values with you. And we're going to start this week by looking at gospel centrality. And there is an actual logic to these core values. There is a flow of thought. They're not just um, thrown together with no uh, order in mind. And why is that? Because the reason is because everything begins with the gospel. Our worship, our gathering together is the most basic response to what the Bible calls the gospel. And when as a gathered community we worship and receive the good news week in and week out and that good news takes root in our lives by the Holy Spirit, what happens? A new community is born. New relationships form. Old relationships are deepened and mature. We become the people of God. And when that good news takes root in our lives and it begins to bubble out into the lives of others, what happens? We grow in love for our city, our community. That's why we have city focus there at the end. So there is a progression, but it all begins with the gospel. So we're going to talk about what is gospel centrality. And like I said, why are we beginning with this? Because we believe that everything about God, the church, the life of faith, begins with and flows from the gospel. But also... We begin with this because every church is prone to displace the gospel or replace it with something else, just like we do every day in our own lives. And to maybe hopefully give you a a sort of an emotional connection to this, I want you to think about the last time you um, misplaced your car keys or you couldn't find your wallet and what happened Everything in your life comes to a crashing halt. Anger begins to build up. Uh, Everyone else in the family becomes a target of suspicion because they misplaced your keys or your son or daughter wanted to roam through your wallet to see what was in there and then they set it down somewhere and they have no idea where they left it and you have a meeting in 15 minutes and you don't have your keys or you don't have your wallet your entire life is hanging in the balance and then how do you feel when you find them it's like oh okay my life can go on that is a little window into when the church displaces the gospel It's like losing your keys or losing your wallet. Everything can begin to unravel. You don't know what to do. You can't move forward. All of your uh, hopes for that day are potentially ruined. Somebody else might have got your credit cards and your identity might be stolen. When the church displaces the gospel, it's a disaster. But what's really difficult is... You know when you lose your keys. You know when you misplace your wallet. But countless churches throughout the history of the world don't see when they displace the gospel with something else. And that's why we begin here with gospel centrality. 
Here's a question. What would a new person who came to Red Mountain think matters most to us as a church? What would they think? Would it be our music? Would it be that we do the Lord's Supper every week? Would it be our groovy, exposed brick? Would it be, oh, you meet in the Avon Theater? Would it be our uh, ideas and strategies to love the city? Or would it be the good news about Jesus? And I just want you to think about this. I'll press into this a little bit. I want you to hear me say, first of all, I love our music. But I will tell you, in, in sort of the circles I traffic in, when I say I'm the senior pastor at Red Mountain, you know what the first thing they say is? Oh, you're that church that made all those CDs. Red Mountain Music. That's the first thing they know of. Now, I'm not chastising us. That's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. But I asked that question to get us to think. What would someone who's new coming into this community of believers walk out thinking is the most important thing to us? And this is not a new problem. The Apostle Paul, he knew this problem personally. And he sought to overcome it in his ministry and even in his own life. In all of his letters that he wrote. This was at the heart of what he's trying to overcome. And this is significant for Paul because if you, we'll come back to this in a moment. Paul, before he became a Christian, he was super religious. He was an expert in the law. He was well respected and admired. And you know what? He was totally wrong about God. Totally wrong. And then grace changed him. And so repeatedly, what we see in his letters, he'll say things like this. Earlier in this book, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul most wanted to know. And then in the book of Galatians, he's writing to these churches who have been so quick to turn to another gospel, to a different one. This is a problem that's not new. And it's every bit as much a reality and a problem for us. And in one form or another, this was the problem that Paul was always addressing. And so, that's why I want us to begin looking at our core values by looking at gospel centrality. And we're going to look at two points from this passage. What is it and who it's for? What is it and who it's for? So first, what is this gospel that we uh, and the scriptures and Paul are saying uh, need to be at the heart and center of our own individual lives and our community together? Well, first of all, you know, gospel is a term that we throw around all the time in the church. But it's important for us to come back and say, well, what exactly does that mean? And it's most basic level... This word that we translate as gospel means good news. And the question, though, is what kind of good news are we talking about? There is one kind of good news, which we might call gospel blessings that are found throughout the scriptures. Things that we've even been looking at in recent weeks. Things like 
peace with God, reconciliation with God, forgiveness for sin, full and free access to God, a firm and certain hope of glory, that things as they are will not always be this way, that God is going to make everything new. Uh, freedom from guilt and power of sin. The promise of personal change. The power to become the man or woman that God intended you to be. And the motivation to love others, even our enemies. Now those are all what we would call gospel blessings or fruits of the gospel, results of the gospel. And those are, in fact, very good news. Those are beautiful and good things. But what happens if there is a big gap between those blessings, your experience of those blessings, and your life, and what you read in the scriptures? What if you don't see change in your life? What if you still feel like you live under the power of sin. What if in our own experience as a church community, uh, our great ideas and strategies fail? It doesn't seem like there's much hope. It doesn't appear that God is at work. What if there's a big gap between what the scriptures promise and we experience. Where is the good news then? How, to put it in a question, how can you be assured that God loves you every day, no matter what's going on in your life, whether good or bad? In order to answer that question, we have to understand the kind of good news that we are talking about. When we talk about gospel centrality, is not the blessings of the gospel as good as they are. We're talking about something much more specific. In the Bible, when you pay attention to how the Bible actually defines this word gospel, it's not the fruits of the gospel or the results or the effects. The Bible translates this word gospel, which actually occurs in some form in various forms. 23 different times in the Old Testament and 133 times in the New Testament. And it's a term that in the ancient Near East, it was, just, it was a term that was used to describe a de decisive event in history that fundamentally changes the course of your future. So I think for a moment, in your own life, what are some decisive moments or events in your life that you look back on and your life is now different because of that event. Maybe it was the day you got married. Maybe it was the day you graduated from college or graduate school. Maybe it was a promotion. Or maybe it was the day your parents got divorced. Or maybe it was the day that you or someone else said or did something that has enduring consequences and have left a mark on you, whether for good or bad. See, the gospel, according to the scriptures, is like 
in the ancient Near East, when a, a, a king would go off to battle and would win this battle and would come home and there would be an announcement, a proclamation of victory that the king had won, had defeated the enemies of his people and his people are now free. That's a gospel. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation of a decisive event in history that forever changes your future. And why is this so important? Why am I taking the time to draw this distinction between the blessings, the fruits of the gospel, and the gospel itself? Because when we confuse what the gospel is with what the gospel does, we inevitably shift the good news from what Jesus has done to how we are doing. And when we shift the good news in our own lives or in our church from what Jesus Christ has done for us to how we are doing, that is terrible news. That is is a burden we cannot bear. The good news is not about how we are doing. The good news is according to the Bible, is specifically and only about Jesus and what he has done. The gospel, therefore, is first and foremost a report. It's an announcement. God's announcement to you of good news, of a decisive event that he has done for us. And there's more. That's why Paul says here, In verse 3, when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. And then he rose again on the third day. According to the scriptures. That is the good news. And yet there's more. It is good news that is also reliable. Notice what Paul says here. He says, again, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Again, verse 4, in accordance with the scriptures. What's he saying? He didn't make this up. This is not a new story. This is good news that has been part of God's story from the very beginning. And Jesus speaks this very same way when he talks to his disciples after he rose from the dead. He says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what is that that had to be fulfilled? Jesus says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third, and on the third day rise from the dead. According to Jesus, to say according to the scriptures is to say that he had to suffer and die and rise again. That's what the whole Bible is about. This is not a new story. In fact, Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, which we've mentioned several times in our weeks looking at the story of Abraham, where he says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel is reliable because it's not new. It's an old story. It's God's story. But it's not just... New because, or reliable because it's according to the scriptures, 
we also see here, Paul helps us to see that it's historically reliable. That you can build your life on this good news. How so? Well, first of all, hopefully you can uh, just track with me for a minute. I, w- I want to share some details that really are important for you to be able to trust the scriptures. Paul's letters, they were written 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. And scholars across the the theological spectrum would say that 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD. So Jesus, uh, it's thought as to, to die and rise in 33 AD, right around in there. But look at verses 5 and 6. Here he says, Paul says, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now that'd be an easy passage to to run by, but what's being said here? Paul is talking about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to Peter, to the twelve disciples, And then to over 500 people, Paul says, most of whom are still alive at the writing of 1 Corinthians. Now you think about that for a moment. Especially in 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul is writing specifically to deal with people who are saying the resurrection did not happen. So if Paul is arguing, Jesus did die on the cross for our sins, and he did rise from the dead three days later. And that was a big sham. It wasn't true. There are people who were still alive and saw it happen that could have said to Paul, dude, you're making this up. But instead what we have is Paul is saying, you know what, if you don't think that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, go talk to these people. They're still alive. They saw it. Paul is making here a claim of eyewitness reliability. If the church made this up, you wouldn't want to include this kind of thing. This is a claim for reliability, but what it also means is if that is true, and you look at when Paul wrote his letters, 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written within the lifetime of people who saw Jesus alive from the dead. This good news is reliable. And why do I take the time to tell you those details? Why does it matter that this really happened? The reason it matters is because Christianity is not a message of be a better person. Christianity is not a recipe for becoming your best you. It is a a message of grace. You see, if Christianity really is not about what you have done, but about what God has done, then he had to do something that actually happened in history that fits with our desperate need. The reason it matters that this really happened and that you can stake your life on it historically is because it's a religion of grace, of God doing something for you, of Jesus coming to live the life that 
you should have lived and dying the death that you deserve to die. That's why it matters that it really happened and that you believe that it really happened because you cannot save yourself. Now, if that's what the gospel is, that it's good news and it's reliable, then who's it for? Look here, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Now, why does Paul say he is unworthy to be called an apostle? Because I persecuted the church of God. Now, I want you to think about this. I think a lot of times it's hard for people, especially if you grew up in the South or around the church, we tend to think of um, when you say that you're, you're unworthy, you kind of look at a person's life and think, man, they're a disaster. Like you can just see they're a mess. Well, here's the problem. You could look at Paul's life and there was no mess. How does Paul describe his own life? Well, listen. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And then in Philippians 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Here is a man who was a religious elite. He had all the pedigree, he had all the credentials. And yet, as I said, he got it totally wrong. What does that mean? This means that your very best efforts, your very best intentions, whether they be religious or irreligious, are as damning for you as the worst thing you've ever done. Isaiah puts it like this. He says, our, filthy, our righteousness is but filthy rags. Another way to put, it this, put this is, do you know what really is a Christian? A Christian is not just someone who repents of the wrong things, the bad things they do. A Christian is a person who repents for all the reasons that ever did anything good. That's why Paul says he was unworthy. And you see, that means the gospel is as much or more so for religious moral people as it is for irreligious people. And I say this to me as much as I say it to you, we inside the church need to be centered on this gospel. We should never think we graduate from it. Because when we do, we begin to mistreat people, manipulate people, just like Paul persecuted the church. So then, what does this mean for us? What's the solution to this problem that Paul knows of himself, that he sees in his churches, that we experience in our own lives? The solution to that problem isn't doing something. 
but it's what God has done. It's a man on the cross dying for his enemies. That is what is of first importance. How do we not displace the gospel in our own lives and in our church? The only way that we will not displace that gospel is when you begin to see that Jesus didn't allow anything to displace his love for sinners. He was forsaken and abandoned by all of his disciples. His family had no idea what he was doing. He even cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned. But you know what he was doing there? He was showing you and me the lengths to which he would go to never lose you, to never displace you. You will never be Jesus' lost car keys or lost wallet. And until that good news makes its way into the very depths of our being, we will always find ourselves in danger of displacing the gospel. But when you see Jesus' love for you that took him to the cross so that he would never lose you, that's how we keep the gospel central. Now, I want you to see here just by way of landing this plane, Paul says about himself, Despite all this about him, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What that means for you today, if you are a believer, it is by the grace of God that you are who you are today. And that's it. That's true for us as a church too. It is by the grace of God that we are here. Some of you know what that means because you've been here from the beginning. And it's not because we're so great or ideas are so good or even that our music is so rich. We are here because of the grace of God. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to hear me say that this grace is free and is an offer for you. And if you are put out by it or offended by it, that's, that actually means you're paying attention. Because grace means you can't save yourself. Jesus had to do it for you. And you've got to accept that. You've got to receive that. You've got to own that. But when you do, that's where freedom is. That's where joy is. That's where all those blessings of the gospel we talked about early on become yours to enjoy and to delight in and to share. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this good news. Thank you for telling us again and again our need for it. And we ask that um, you would help us to keep this wonderful announcement that Christ died, that he was buried and that he rose again for our sins to set us free and to give us new life. We ask that you'd help us as a church to keep this gospel at the center of all that we do, all that we think, and all that we say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.